It's the ACDC Beyond the Thunder podcast. With your host, Kurt Squires. It's time to rock. Hello, fellow ACDC zealots. And welcome to ACDC Beyond the Thunder, a podcast which revolves around the extraordinary fans who've been influenced by this extraordinary band. However, we're flipping this episode on its head and introducing you to an extraordinary man within the music industry by the name of Phil Carson. Not familiar with Phil? Well, you should be, because without Phil Carson, dare I say, there would be no ACDC. I'm your host, Kurt Squires, and I'm here in Sherman Oaks, California with my trusty partner, Greg Ferguson, to take you behind the scenes of the early days of ACDC with a man who acquired many titles over the years, musician, record exec, senior VP of Atlantic Records, record label owner. Out of curiosity, Phil, what is the current title on your business card now? Uh, Legend. (laughs) Perfect. Okay, so let's take our listeners back to the beginning. How did you get started in this industry? Uh, I loved the music of Elvis Presley when I started, and you know, rock and roll was just beginning. The school I was at had a little band that was in the days of Skiffle, which most people are far too young to remember. It's kind of early American style of music. And I just hung around the school band, and. When they would stop rehearsing, I'd pick up a guitar and play it. And I just got bitten by the bug of being a musician and eventually ended up uh, playing with some quite well-known English rock bands of the, uh, uh, of the early 60s era. Very early 60s era, I hate to say. Uh, I was in Dusty Springfield's original group called the Springfields. A uh, couple of other bands that had hits there was a legendary English producer called Joe Meek, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be in a band that he produced. Uh, so that's what I did. I was a working musician for a little while, and uh, eventually I went into the business side of it. I'm glad you mentioned Elvis Presley because I wanted to ask you about the origins of rock and roll, which started, as Bon Scott claims, back in 1955. Who do you give more credit to influencing this monster band we're about to get into? Performers like Elvis, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, or their predecessors like Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters, Etta James? Or is it simply from the great British peers in bands from the 60s? All great rock music is based on American black music. All of it. That's where it comes from. And if you want to play a guitar in a rock band, you'll better know about Muddy Waters and Etta James and Elmore James and all the great players and singers that, that came up from the 30s on, because that's where it started. You know? The English people, the, the bands like the Yardbirds, Cream, Led Zeppelin, The Who, The Rolling Stones particularly, just took that music and made it important again. And most of them, including ACDC, know where their roots are. All the great ones know where their roots are. Uh, I mean, Angus Young is a formidable guitarist, formidable, but because he listened to those things growing up. His 
parents and his older brothers, you know, they were all musicians in that family. And uh, that's where it came from. He, music was in the soul of both Malcolm and Angus. And that's one of the things that made them what they became. Angus Young once said that the reason he first embraced music was after hearing Little Richard. So how cool was it for you years later to not only join Angus Young and ACDC on stage, but also play bass guitar to a Little Richard song? Was it um, Lucille? Lucille, that's right. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> I, it's just a thing that, you know, they, they all knew I was a, 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 used to be a musician. And uh, including Led Zeppelin. I used to play with Led Zeppelin. Uh, you know, and particularly in the early days, uh, uh, they'd let me up for the encore. John Paul Jones would go and play um, uh, keyboards and I'd play his bass guitar. I'd say right now that he played better bass with his feet on the pedals of a Hammond <laughs> organ than I could ever play on a bass guitar. Amazing. But it was just great to be there. I, I'm a big ham. I love playing music, particularly blues music. Yeah. So to be able to play with Jimmy Page or Angus Young or Mick Jones from Foreigner, uh, all of these great bands that I was fortunate enough to be a part of in my career and actually get out and play with them, man. I mean, that, that was something. Speaking of Led Zeppelin, I read a quote where you were trying to convince Robert Plant to get Zeppelin to take ACDC under its wing, maybe bring them out on the road with the Hammer of the Gods, and Robert Plant responded to something like, well, Phil, they're kind of derivative, aren't they? Yes, he did say that. I was trying to get them to, um, that, I was trying to really break ACDC into the, the very big time. This was in, I guess, 1979. They were doing pretty damn well by then, by the way, but I just wanted to get them to the into something really big. And Ze Zeppelin were playing Nebworth, and you know we had a meeting at Blake's Hotel in London. You know I brought up ACDC, and uh, the rest of the band kind of liked them. Really, Jimmy thought they were kind of kind of cool, but um, Robert thought, oh no, they're derivative. You know, well, you know, yeah, they're derivative of rock and roll and blues music, Robert, just like you. <laughs> but uh, that was. Um, about as far as I got with that one. Fair point. So they didn't play Nebworth, but what was the best gig you were able to land for ACDC before they'd hit their peak? When I was trying to break ACDC in England at, at the beginning of their career, the most important festival in those days was the Reading Festival. Right. And the Reading Festival was an incredibly well-organized festival. It had a great backstage. All the record labels would have a tent and the journalists had like a beer and food tent. and. Uh, that's where the journalists would stay, in the beer and food tent, unless there was a reason for them to go out and watch a band. And ACDC are way down the bill. I mean, they're in the middle of the afternoon and nobody would care. So I came up with an idea. I thought, I'm gonna start a little buzz backstage, you know, that will force people out there. And what I did, I hired two or three of Led Zeppelin's security guys. And, you know, as the bands were changing over, and ACDC's crew were getting set up, I had the security guards stop anyone getting on the stage. And they were instructed to say, no, you can't come on stage, ACDC's going on. <laughs> and who gave a fuck, you know, ACDC, <laughs> who knew them back then, really? Right. Yeah. And, uh, but this created a buzz. You know? And I was in the beer tent waiting for it to happen. Hey, this fucking Australian band's going on. <laughs> no one's allowed on the stage when they're on. Who the fuck do they think they are? 
you know, and it created this buzz and uh, sure enough, the journalist went out and saw ACDC. Uh, and and it was a, they went over great because they are a great band and uh, it, that's one of the things that started them having some notoriety in England. But I really nearly shot myself completely in the foot with this because the one supporter that ACDC had in radio back then was a, uh, a, a very uh, innovative and influential DJ called John Peel. Mm -hmm. And he played their music, probably alone, he played their music. Huh. Unfortunately, my Led Zeppelin security guys threw him off the stage as well, <laughs> but he forgave me for it, so that was okay. That's an excellent story. Early guerrilla marketing. It was very early yes. guerrilla marketing. That's yeah. so awesome. Let's go back to a phone call we shared where we discussed what may very well have been the most seminal moment in ACDC's entire career. And listeners, if you haven't heard this story, it's one of my all-time favorites in the band's massive timeline. One that revolves around ACDC's manager's sister. The gorgeous Coral Browning, yeah. And the wonderful part about this story is that you essentially hired ACDC because you were simply trying to get laid? It's true. I never put it that way before. Yeah, I signed ACDC because of TNA. That is correct. Actually, they were good players too. Can you please recall that fateful day for us? Uh, yes, okay. So uh, I signed a band called Backstreet Crawler, which was uh, featured Paul Kozoff, who was the guitarist of Free. And you know, in the middle of A&Ring this, this project, I thought, there's something a little bit missing. I think it needs a keyboard you know, to, to fill it out. And there was a keyboard player that played with Free who went by the name of Rabbit. Uh, Rabbit, by the way, to this day, plays with the Who keyboard, so he's still around. He's, a, he's old as me and Pete Townsend. So um, you know, I try to track down Rabbit and I call around the studios and say, oh, he's been looked after by this Australian girl. Name is Coral Browning. And uh, I called Coral and summoned her to my office in uh, at Atlantic. And she came up, and I'll never forget Coral Browning because she was drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, she was about 25, 26 maybe. Beautiful, long, dark brown hair. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> she was very, very pretty girl. And I always remember what she was wearing. She was wearing one of these, it was the middle of the summer. She was wearing this lovely, long, print dress and she was absolutely you know terrific she we make a deal for rabbit to do some sessions with the backstreet crawler and at the end of it she said in a charming australian manner i hope you don't think it's unprofessional but can i talk about another band well frankly she could have talked about anything she wanted to at this <laughs> particular point and uh she um, put on my desk this briefcase, and I've never seen anything like it before or since. It was a, uh, it was kind of briefcase that opened like that, and out popped uh, a, a screen, uh, which, and it turned out to be a back projection, a Super 8 back projection. Because these were the days before video. This was like early 1975, and there was no, nobody had a video in those days. And uh, anyway, it was ACDC doing a long way to the top live in some club in Australia. Wow. And, you know, I recall that I stopped it halfway through. I had a little, she said, well, don't you like it? Well, look, you didn't want to be too enthusiastic because it costs more money if you're enthusiastic. So I said, well, they're all right. Yeah, sure, they're all right. Uh, 
But, and you say the record company in Australia is sending them over here to do some showcases, right? She says, yeah, yeah, I'm going to book these four shows and I just want you to come. I said, well, look, why are we bothering with that? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll sign them right now. But the record company can still send them over. Uh, and you know, they can pay the money to send them here. And I'll put them on the Backstreet Crawler tour. So she said, you can do that? I said, I can do anything. Anyway, the story, long story is that you know, they came over and uh, that's how they started in England. Unfortunately, we lost Paul Kozoff um, you know, uh, before the tour started. So right. the, the tour never took place. He, he, he died. And, I remember that. But we, yeah, sure, we called her little brother in Australia and uh, made the deal over the phone for 15 albums. And I think the initial deal was uh, the Australian record I had to send them over uh, to do the tour. They'd already paid for the first two records, by the way, which was High Voltage and TNT. Mm -hmm. And I compiled the first release of ACDC outside of Australia, was compiled from tracks from those two albums. And we called that album High Voltage. High Voltage, that's uh, right. And I think the deal was I paid them $25,000 an album delivered. And, um, Incredible. Which means that, you know, they give you a finished album for $25,000. Right, right. And I think I did, uh, well, I know I did a deal for 15 such albums initially. 15 albums, that's unheard of. So that's how that, uh, yeah, that's, that's the signing of ACDC. What an amazing moment. The fact that you could hear the music of ACDC and also had that rare visual cue must have been a crucial one-two punch in making a decision about the band's future. And a band 10,000 miles away from London, for that matter. Um, what was your initial reaction to both the music and visual together on this little device? I had Bon Scott, you know, stripped to the waist, you know, playing the bagpipes and Angus Young in the school. I thought, this is great. I mean, this, this is rock and roll, you know. See, this is 1975. And in 1975, I was the guy looking after all the English bands that, that we'd signed, like Yes, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and more importantly, Led Zeppelin. And I was very close with Led Zeppelin. I developed a very good relationship with them. So I would go on the road all over America, uh, in fact, all over the world with Zeppelin, which gave me an edge in England as, a, as an A&R guy at a record label, because I actually knew what was happening. The other bozos had no damn clue, you know, because the, they didn't get to America as much as I did. Right. So I really thought that I could take ACDC and get them on the radio in America and that the American people would, would like them. Um, turned out not to be the case, of course, because the, the first album came out with, with, to miserable reviews, uh, you know, this high voltage record, and sold a princely 7,000 copies in America. Wow. In those days, if it was on Atlantic Records, it almost certainly just sold 100,000 records anyway, because that was the rock and roll label, but not ACDC, they got no acceptance whatsoever. So no traction in America, which is true because I don't remember hearing the name ACDC until 1979. Certainly there was very little airplay, if not any. Uh, apart from one DJ in Philadelphia, uh, I think it was at the radio station, which was the, what we then called the FM station, was YSP. And I remember he made a review, he said, ACDC don't rock and roll. ACDC are rock and roll. I thought, wait a minute, yeah, that's right, that's right. 
So you know, they gave me a lot of heart, you know, to, to keep working the band. Gradually, you know, we, we started to get some traction in England and in, and in Europe, but nothing in America. In fact, when they delivered the second album, the A&R staff in America said, oh, this is terrible, I mean, this is, this is nothing. You know, we're not going to put it out. We're going to drop the band. I said, yeah, yeah, she can't drop the band because, you know, I'm telling you, I want to keep them in Europe. If you don't want to put it out in America, you don't, you don't have to. You're wrong, but you don't have to. So they didn't release that album, but nonetheless, you know, I put it out in, uh, in Europe and it got a bit more traction, but it really wasn't until the third album that we started to really feel, you know, a bit of a, a groundswell going for ACDC. Uh, and that, that's kind of what started the, the thing moving along. And it took a long time to break ACDC. So I got to ask, why were you continuing to champion this band? Not only did you give ACDC their big break with a major record deal through Atlantic, a UK tour, then exposure in America, but now fighting for their very existence, it seems like you were the only one left who believed in ACDC, a band hanging on by a thread right up until the end of the 70s, really. Yeah, that, that's true, because you know the, the, the thing about being in A&R, if all you do is sign bands and you know create the the A and R process or participate in the A and R process, it's not easy. But because my job at Atlantic Records was outside of the mainstream, I was running Atlantic by that time for the rest of the world outside of America. So I was responsible not only for the A and R side of the the things that I signed, but also for marketing and development and promotion of everything on Atlantic. So fortunately, I had the power back then to push the button and you know, make sure the records got promoted properly. And ACDC was a band that I thought were unbelievably fabulous and that really could, could sell. So I spent a lot of energy, time and money developing them. And they were such hard workers, man. I mean, they, there's nothing that they wouldn't do provided they could see there was value in it. You know, they weren't a pushover at any time, by any means. But, you know, if you said, look, guys, I want you to go uh, right after you play in Stockholm. You know, I, I've got to put you in a car and you've got to drive 10 hours to be in Copenhagen in the morning to do this important TV show. I think it's important. They're there. I mean, those guys would do anything if they could see there was value in it. And they, they would sleep on the floor of you know people's houses. But my record company representative in Scandinavia, you know, we could he, he didn't have money to spend on them, but he took them into his house. You know, they're sleeping on the floor of his house, man. You know, if the rec if the, if the band would do that, then as a record company, you ought to be participating and joining in the process. And I did, and a lot of my people did, uh, and eventually even the Americans caught up with the, with the process and got behind it. Well, Phil, we salute you for working hard in those days, for never giving up, and truly believing in this wonderful thing that we all share and appreciate called ACDC. Tell us about, you had mentioned marketing and promoting ACDC. How did that come into play back then? You already had a great band name. You've got the schoolboy antics. Atlantic then serves up a great new logo, uh, which we all know now 
as the gothic ACDC logo. How important was all of that outside of ACDC's catalog? Well, of course, it all played into it. Nobody was doing what they did. I mean, they came to Atlantic, you know, got a great logo. Yeah, Atlantic created that logo, the, the one that they have now, because it was different originally. So, it, it, you know, we, we had a fabulous name of a band. ACDC is a great name for a band, you know. Uh, the logo t said it all, and the image of Angus and Bon. You know, you look at the damn thing, you knew it was rock and roll, you know. So that's, that, that was extremely important, because getting their records played, particularly in Europe, was not easy. So the marketing w was very key. What broke them, really, was a tour that I put together with a British magazine called Sounds. And I had this idea of, uh, of, of having an evening of rock music by having some of it on film. Some of the great American artists that Atlantic had, and British, I got some, I cobbled together kind of a film show. So, and if you had your copy of Sounds with you, you got in for you know, half a dollar, 50, 50 English pence, to go in into a club and see the Atlantic show with all these the, the, the bands on film and ACDC Live. And that really was another important stepping stone to, in their career. I also read where you promoted an Angus schoolboy slash schoolgirl dress-alike contest, did you not? Oh, we did, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did, yes. I had all my girls in the office dress up as schoolgirls. It was a great moment for me. <laughs> And uh, it actually was soured a little by one of my promotion guys also dressing up as a schoolgirl. But you know they're English. What can you do? You know? But yeah, we, that that worked. We had we had the first air guitar contest for ACDC years ago. That was a big thing. I remember that back in England. And all of those things worked. You know? And they only work because the band is a great band. You mentioned Bond Scott. We all know that he was this great character, a true, authentic rock and roll pirate, if you will. Can you tell us a story about Bond that nobody's heard before? Bond was a, a, a great guy. I mean, I really have very fond memories of Bond Scott. Uh, he enjoyed a drink, playful, fun, uh, great singer. And back in the early days, you know, he used to carry Angus around with him on his shoulders and go out in the audience. And in the old, early, earliest days, they had an extension cable, you know, with a roadie like, going behind him. But eventually, I, I think I've managed to get some money together to buy Angus one of the very first radio um, right. systems. Yes. So that, that made a difference. But I do remember one day in, uh, in the Hammersmith Odeon, when they'd sold out the Hammersmith Odeon, um, I was there with, uh, with my wife, who was, used to run a TV show called, called The Old Grey Whistle Test. And she and Bomb were very friendly. And we're standing you know, at, the, at the side of the auditorium, and he's coming out with Angus on his shoulders and, you know, gives, uh, gives us a, my uh, now ex-wife a, a nudge with his shoulder and whirls round and Angus's guitar clips her right in the mouth. Oh. and broke her tooth. Oh. <laughs> so she, she had, so we had to take her to uh, get that fixed, but that was courtesy of Mr. Bond Scott. Oh man. He didn't mean to do it, of course. Tell us about hearing the devastating news about the death of Bond Scott 
and the transition of new singer, a blue-collared Geordie by the name of Brian Johnson. Brian, um, obviously, when we lost Bon, uh, Peter Mensch was managing the band at the time. Peter Mensch is a legendary manager. I think he has the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Metallica, uh, but an absolutely brilliant manager. And uh, you know, he a lot of the success that they had in America is due to the groundwork that uh, um, Michael Browning originally started and that Peter Mensch took to the next level. Terrific manager. And uh, he and I were in America on our way back from uh, a meeting at Atlantic together and we were at the desk checking in and that's when we got the news that Bond passed away as we were on our way back about to get on a seven hour plane ride to London. We had to travel with that awful news that Bond had died. Wow. Uh, and they replaced him with Brian, who I knew, the band had already met at, um, at a concert up in Newcastle. Uh, I knew him from uh, the band Budgie that he was in before. Wow. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it was a very sad moment losing Bond. But Brian really stepped in, into that position. He came in as an employee of the band, you know, just uh, on wages, you know, see how it would go. And of course, then he wrote every song on Back in Black, you know, the way uh, Angus and Malcolm would deliver songs. They'd write a riff and you know, start working on it. And then Brian crafted all the songs over their riffs. Uh, and Brian's approach to writing reflects his personality. He's a fun, you know, fun-loving guy uh, with a wry sense of humour, which comes through in his lyrics. His lyrics are amusing. There's a lot of amusing lyrics, but they're never cheesy. No. He's very clever. They should use him to write songs now because they'd be a hell of a lot better than what they're, what they're doing. Well, we've touched upon this very subject matter in previous interviews and how sorely missed Brian's point of view is. Here's a guy who's written some of the most classic ACDC anthems, fantastic melodies, even explored writing a Broadway musical. Well, he writes great songs. In fact, you know, I've still got the songs that he had ready for this album. So Brian wrote lyrics for Black Eyes. How are they? And they're uniformly excellent. They're really symptomatic of the great stuff that ACDC broke through with in the Back in Black era. So can you see Brian getting the chance to jump back into the writing credits again? You do know how this business works, Kurt, don't you? you know, if you write a song, you get paid for it, okay? So if you want to keep all the money, you better write all the songs. Gotcha. That's uh, the reason for it. Gotcha. So if you want to hear some fantastic wordsmithing from Brian Johnson, you'll have to venture back to the 1980s when he last wrote lyrics for ACDC. Were you with the band throughout that decade? No, I was, I left Atlantic to manage uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant in 1985. So uh, the last concert tour that I actually came to see, I think was either Flick of the Switch or Fly on the Wall, I don't remember. And I, I just came to see them because I might see what my old mates were doing. You were infamously upset about Dirty Deeds being released after Back in Black had become a worldwide sensation in America. Well, that, yeah. No, I get it. I was confused at first, especially as a new fan, 
First, I'm exposed to ACDC at the early age of 10. Their lead singer dies shortly afterwards. And then Brian Johnson comes in, fills these tremendous shoes spectacularly, by the way. And then the next ACDC release is with Bon Scott. I mean, was he back from the dead? You know, I was young, but I, I wasn't from Australia or the UK either. So I'd never even heard of Dirty Deeds and High Voltage. So what's going on here? Yeah, the Dirty Deeds was uh, one of the worst examples of record company greed that you will ever encounter. Uh, the Dirty Deeds was not released in, 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 in America in the order in which it was delivered. They didn't want to put it out because they thought it wasn't a hit. Then after Back in Black had sold, I think, seven or eight million, we were getting toward the end of that year, and Doug Morris, who was then the uh, president of Atlantic, uh, called me up one day and said, oh, we found we've got an unreleased ACDC album here. We're going to put it out. And I said, I said, what, now? Right after you've just had, so you're selling eight million uh, songs with Brian Johnson, you're gonna put out a Bon Scott album? Why would you do that? He said, well, man, you know, we got to the end of the year and, you know, it'll sell two million, you know, and uh, we'll all make our bonuses. I said, we'll all make our bonuses. You'll be right, it will sell two million, but, that will be the new sales plateau of ACDC. If you do that, they'll never sell more than two million records ever again when you, in the initial wave of a release. And unfortunately, I was right. I have a habit of being right, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was just a, a greed-driven situation. I really resigned from Atlantic over it because I thought, you know, I'm not going to do that. Ahmed Erdogan taught me into staying. I was furious. I thought it was, it was, I'm still furious. I don't know why I'm still furious. Doug Morris was a complete idiot for doing that from every way you look at it other than cash in your pocket. And that was never what Atlantic was about until, uh, until he decided to make it that way. And now, of course, he's one of the most powerful men in the record business, but you can play it for him because I don't give a fuck. Oh, that was fantastic. Thank you, Phil. Sorry if that's still a pretty fresh wound. And come to think about it, it, it really must have been strange for Brian to have a new ACDC album released with all Bon Scott material immediately following his debut with ACDC. So can only imagine what he was thinking. Um, he's such a nice guy, he wouldn't say anything probably. But so after your departure from Atlantic, you started a management company with a list of clients who aren't too shabby. Uh, including Yes, Motorhead, Foreigner, Bad Company, Robert Plant, and you even assembled the supergroup featuring Jimmy Page, uh, Paul Rogers, and Chris Slade, called The Firm. But your relationship with Brian Johnson continues outside of ACDC. Can you share some of the ventures you worked on together with Brian, including the task of trying to get that Broadway musical off the ground, and even some voiceover work on the World War II Activision game called Call of Duty. Brian asked me to help him with um, various projects that he was doing. Uh, and so we got, I got into it and uh, we started helping him with the Helen of Troy Broadway musical he wrote, which is fabulous. I mean, the songs are terrific in this thing. 
but getting a Broadway musical off the ground is, is not easy, as, as we all found. Uh, but during the course of this, I realised that he had a lot of other talent than just songwriting. And I wanted to try to encourage him to do some acting and some voiceovers. I, I managed Dee Snyder, who's a major voiceover artist. And I thought it would be great to get him something. And it, how that happened was a rather lovely lady on a, on a first-class flight. And uh, you know, he introduced me to her. And she is a consultant for um, uh, Spark here. And that's how, um, how Brian came to be, do voiceovers in Call of Duty. Perfect voice for a sergeant major in that game. Let's switch gears a bit. Nora Jones, Celine Dion, Billy Joel, Big and Rich, Pat Boone, all very different musicians, and yet all have covered and connected with ACDC like very few other bands can. Why? Because they're the real deal. These, those two guys, Angus and Malcolm, initially put together a band that spoke to people. And, you know, music, other musicians, they're people too. They feel what ACDC, the connection that it has. I mean, one of the smart things that they've always done was to make sure the pricing was right. You go to an ACDC concert and the, the, the price is right. Even now the tickets are not what everybody else is charging. When there'll probably never be another ACDC tour. Everybody's getting too old for it. But, you know, they could clean up now. They could be charging $250 a ticket, but they're not because they want people to come and see them and they want people to pay, you know, 65 bucks and get a good seat, you know, yeah. instead of, oh, we're gonna keep those seats for the Wall Street people who will pay $2,000 for a good seat. Right. They don't do that. I mean, they, they are the real deal and that's what other artists see and that's why other artists endorse their work so, so well. That is such a refreshing answer because the response that we typically get is that ACDC are very authentic and everything that they do, sure. But you're absolutely right. They they're always kept things blue collar, middle class and attainable in almost everything they do. And now that I'm older, that's something that I may have actually taken for granted. But you're absolutely right. So looking back when you first signed ACDC, could you ever have imagined that they would be selling with the likes of the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. No, I thought they would do really well. I mean, I, I thought that, uh, yeah, they could be a gold album in America, ACDC. But uh, you've got to respect what they do. I, mean, I, I remember reading an article, I think it was in People magazine or an interview that Angus had given, but the woman had asked him, Angus, how is it you've been so successful? You know, you've, you've made 11 albums and they all sound the same. And he said, no, no, you're entirely wrong. We made 12 albums and they all sound the same. <laughs> I love that quote. Because they know what they, what they do. They know what touches the nerve and that's it. Phil, thank you so much for opening up the ACDC time capsule for all our listeners and indulging us with the stories told firsthand by someone who was not only there in the flesh and in the trenches with this undisputed Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band, but also someone who can take credit for saving and catapulting 
their monumental career. But before ending with our final question, I got to know, what track is quintessential ACDC to your very trained ears? And to be fair, let's do one with Bon and one with Brian. Long Way to the Top. Yeah. Is, is really the quintessential song of ACDC. Yeah. And what about Brian? And I think after that, it's got to be Back in Black. And that's, these are two, two of the great songs in rock and roll. I think you'd have many, many fans who couldn't agree more with you. And if you have to sum up ACDC in one word, what would it be, Phil? Rock. That's what they are. ACDC Beyond the Thunder theme song, Trailer Trash, written and performed by Gannon Arnold. VO Talent by Bruce Jacobson. Cinematography and sound recording by Greg Ferguson. Edited and mixed by Eric Keel. Brand ambassador and marketing guru, Gino Bona. Written, directed, and hosted by Kurt Squires. Produced by Gino Bona, Greg Ferguson, Eric Keel, and Kurt Squires. ACDC Beyond the Thunder is a Squires LLC current motion production. Copyright Beyond the Thunder podcast, all rights reserved. This has been a Nat Attack presentation. Shazbot. Nanum, nanum.